Morning, folks. Glad to be back. Missed you, folks. We were gone for a couple of weeks, and it was a good vacation. We needed to get away a little bit and get our heads cleared out and refocused a little before, um, yeah, before the wedding rush, Vince, uh, begins. It's going to be a busy year. December is a busy month already, and rolling into 2012, there's a lot, a lot to do. It's a busy time. So really appreciate, Carol and I appreciate the generosity of Foothill Bible Church to enable us to be able to get away for a couple of weeks vacation. And, and so thank you very much, and we're glad to be back. It's December. Where did 2011 go, right? Isn't that crazy how fast things have gone? But here we are. It is December. This is the first Sunday in December. For those who have decorated in here, I greatly appreciate your efforts behind the scenes to make it festive for us. Christmas is an interesting time of year, isn't it? According to the uh, recent news reports, uh, Black Friday was a success this year for retailers. Sales were up. You know why it's called Black Friday, don't you? Because traditionally, that is the day that retailers go uh, get into the black. They have lost money. They have operated in the red for 11 months. And so they generate sales for Christmas at this time of year, and their bottom line goes into the black. And that's why it's called Black Friday. It's a crazy day. I saw while we were away, I saw a news report about the madness of people lining up. And I hope none of you partook of any of that madness. Uh, staying up all hours of the night in line to get the latest gizmo or gadget at giveaway prices, right? Well, if you did, then God forgives you, okay? (laughs) You should be sleeping at that time of night. What about that crazy lady, though, that I saw in the news report, right? She was staking out her claim for a video game, and uh, out came the pepper spray, and she fended off the other shoppers. That's nuts. I'm just telling you, that's nuts. I love Christmas. I love the Christmas season. I love the lights. I love the sounds of music. I love the smells associated with Christmas. I love the memories of family and friends. Most of all, I love to remember that God has given to us the greatest gift imaginable in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, the older I get, the more sobered I become. When I was a child, Christmas just excited all kinds of, of thoughts in my mind, and some of those are still there. You know, I guess I'm a grown-up child in some ways. But as I grow older, I become more sobered about life. The human condition is a difficult one. It's characterized by things like sickness Pain, death, economic hardships, strained relationships, poverty, hunger, crime, war. It's kind of sobering, isn't it, when you really think about it? The truth is that there is a large amount of sorrow in life, to be sure. And at the base behind all of this human misery and sorrow lies the problem of sin, doesn't it? 
If you can trace it back far enough, that's where it always goes. Back into the garden, that poisonous fruit that has flowed out ever since. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, this morning we're coming back to the Sermon on the Mount. By the time we're done with the Sermon on the Mount, your Bible is going to fall open to this section of Matthew's Gospel. You will have a permanent crease somewhere around Matthew chapter 5. We're back here again this morning and we're really still just kind of getting started An issue before us this morning is, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' discussion about those who will inherit his kingdom. He is speaking to them, and he he is articulating for them, what does it mean to be a follower of me? You notice in verse 1, chapter 5, Matthew records for us, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. Note that. The sermon is designed to be preached first and foremost to his followers, to his disciples. There is a a wider audience to be sure, and as we deepen into the sermon, particularly around chapter 7, it begins to to move beyond and through the disciples to address the crowd at large, the multitudes, Luke's gospel tells us, are gathered there. I told you last time as well that in order to really understand this sermon, you need to to remember that there's undoubtedly a group of Pharisees that are standing off to the edge as well. They're following him around and they're still investigating and poking and prodding and They pretty much have made up their minds about him and that they're not interested in this prophet from Nazareth, but but they're still there on the edge. And so as we progress here, we'll see that back and forth action going on where Jesus says, you've heard it said, you've you've heard it written, and so forth, and he's pointing to them, and then he's clarifying the truth. So that foil of the Pharisees on the edge of the crowd as well. But this is primarily for his disciples. And it's a big question, big question really, big question mark over this as we enter this section of the sermon. It's known as the Beatitudes, right? Beatitudes. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? That's the big question. Kind of hangs over this section. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. What, what is a disciple of Jesus? What are they like? So Jesus begins to answer that question. And he does it here beginning in verse 3 and through verse 12, commonly known as the Beatitudes. And he gives what we noted last time as an eight-part description of a disciple. There's an eight-part description here, and, and each part of the description has a, has a future reward associated with it. They all begin with the word blessed, right? Blessed. And then there's a reward that goes with those who are followers, those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. Last time we noted as well that, that each 
part of the description. Each of the eight parts of the description build on each other. They're like Lego blocks. They snap onto each other and, and build this composite picture. So they each presuppose the other to a certain degree. They're linked in that way. Furthermore, they're all rooted in the Old Testament. That shouldn't surprise us. Right? Jesus is a preacher of the Old Testament. He is an Old Testament preacher. And so all of the blessings and, and all of the descriptions of the disciple, of the follower of his, are found rooted in the Old Testament. That's his source material. Now, he said as we look at these eight parts, and, and I'm going through this purposefully kind of slow. Somebody asked me the other day, are you going to group a few together? And the answer is no. We could do that. In fact, most commentaries do that. They, they, they work their way through this section pretty quickly. They, they devote about a paragraph to each of the Beatitudes, and they roll right through. And, and they correctly identify them and, and sort of explain them, but, but they don't spend much time drawing out the deep implications of it all. And I think the danger for us is if we, if we take that kind of approach, is that we move over and we check it off in our mind, oh yeah, this, that, this, that, boom, and we're off. And it never sinks in. It never goes deep. So I think it's worth taking the time to slow down, work them through one at a time, feel the weight of it all, and be encouraged by the blessings attached and associated therewith. It says, I don't know how to do it any other way. That's the way we're doing it. So we're taking a three-pronged approach. A three-pronged approach to each part of the description. Three prongs, eight parts, three times eight is, that's it, 24, 24. I'm not terribly creative, so I'm going to use the same three prongs for each eight parts. That'll make it really easy for you and me to remember the outline of the sermon. You You ought to be able to speak it in your sleep by the time we're done. Three-pronged approach. Each of the prongs has a word attached to it, just a simple word. It's just a hook to hang your thoughts on. That's all. Very simple words. Three prongs, three words. Here they are. Designate, evaluate, cultivate. Designate, evaluate, cultivate. By the time we've done that eight weeks in a row, we'll have it. It's simply, we want to designate the characteristic. We want to take the time to to really explain and understand what is it. Designate it. Then what we want to do is we want to evaluate our own lives in light of that characteristic. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that those who are my followers, this is how they are. This is what describes them. So we want to evaluate ourselves in light of that. The third is cultivate. and We want to have some practical application on how to cultivate that characteristic, that part of the description in our lives. That's our approach. 
As we said last time, and we'll continue to say, the Beatitudes are not requirements for certain works that merit the approval or favor of God. This is not a works-based theology. This is a description. These are character traits that exist in principle in someone who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And they are characteristics or character traits that are to be cultivated and developed over the life of that disciple. So they exist in principle. If you are a follower of Christ, right, we are saved by grace through faith alone, then in principle, this is true of you. All of these are true of you. But through the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, they will become more and more true of us in practice. That's the approach. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Designate. Let us designate the characteristic. Verse 4. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Last time, we looked at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we looked last time at verse 3, we we determined that to be poor in spirit could be characterized by a single word. The word is humility. And the idea is, blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And that sort of opened it up to us, didn't it? Well, as a consequence of being poor in spirit, of being humbled, of recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy and poverty, then verse 4, we will mourn. That's the tie, that's the connection. As a result of a recognition that we have nothing spiritually, it, it is God's gift to us, we are bankrupt. Then as a consequence, we are thus filled with sorrow. We are filled with sorrow. The word translated mourning is a strong term. It's a very strong term. One commentator says this about it. It says that mourning is a a sorrow that begins in the heart. It takes possession of the entire person, and then it is outwardly manifested. It begins in the heart. It, It takes control of the entire person, and then it is outwardly manifested. It's a strong word to mourn. Now, most people will admit they're sinners. Isn't that true? Most people will admit they're sinners. But that acknowledgement in of itself proceeds, generally speaking, from a rather cold and dead heart. There's not a lot of mourning attached to that admission. There are people and many who have deep regrets about things they have done or not done in life. 
They may cry some, some really alligator, crocodile kind of tears, right? There could be a lot of crying associated with the regrets, the deep regrets, for the sins of their lives. But the Apostle Paul warns us that there are two types of tears, two kinds of sorrows. He says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 that the sorrow of the deep regret that is, proceeds from a spiritually cold heart is a sorrow of the world. He calls it a sorrow of the world. He says, basically, that, that this kind of sorrow, it focuses on the painful consequences of the sin that it produces for the sinner. Rather than understanding and acknowledging sin as an affront against a holy God. And that's kind of key. That's kind of key. When we see our sin, when we, we recognize our our failures and our shortcomings, but our focus is essentially upon the pain it causes and brings to us rather than the affront that it is to God. And then we are expressing what Paul calls a sorrow of the world. Sorrow of the world. When we see it as an affront against God, that is a godly sorrow, Paul says, and, and it is that sorrow that brings repentance. Brings repentance. Judas, you remember him. Judas had profound sorrow. His betrayal of Christ leading to his unlawful arrest, illegal trial, and humiliating execution produced incredible sorrow within Judas, but it was, it was a self-contained personally focused sort of sorrow. It was not a godly sorrow. It was a worldly sorrow. And of course, it manifests itself ultimately in Judas going out and hanging himself. There was no repentance. There is the sorrow that leads leads to life. This is the sorrow that understands sin as, as I say, is a rejection of a holy God. It's It's an affront to God himself. God's righteous rule. It's an assault upon the character of God. Psalm 51, David expresses a godly sorrow, a response to his abominable sin with Bathsheba and the resulting execution, murder style of his close friend. Psalm 51 and verse 4, David says, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Psalm 51 verse 4. That's really an incredible statement by David, isn't it? He took another man's wife. He used his power to arrange for that man's death that he might then seize her to marry her and cover his sin, the pregnancy of the child conceived within her. I mean, the, the whole set of circumstances is vile. 
And yet David says, it's against you, God, and you only, ultimately, that I have sinned. When someone is possessed of this kind of sorrow, they have a broken and a contrite heart, according to Psalm 51, verse 17. Something, the psalmist says, God will not despise. God will not despise. When we talk about mourning, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, those who sorrow. It's this kind of sorrow we're talking about. It is a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow. It is a godly sorrow. It's what characterizes someone who is, is truly a mourner, a follower of Christ. We want to put a word on it. We put a word on verse 3, didn't we? We called it humility. If we want to put a word on verse 4, I think the word would be repentant. Repentant. Blessed are the repentant, for they shall be comforted. I think that's the idea. That's the idea. Now, what does mourning after sin look like or mourning over sin? What does it look like? Well, turn to the right here. We could see a couple of illustrations really quickly. Probably familiar to you. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. This is a parable that Jesus tells. It's a parable in which there are two characters, and they are, they are intentionally placed side by side to illustrate the, the deep point of the parable. And the deep point of the parable is that only those who mourn, only those who, who humble their heart before God go home justified. So it's the tax collector, right, and the Pharisee. One who exalts in his own righteousness, prays to himself, as it were. And then there is the tax collector who has nothing of righteous nature, no external props in which he can depend. And so he comes before God with a broken heart. Verse 13 is the one I want, verse I want to just focus on to illustrate. It says, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what it means to mourn. That's what it means to mourn over sin. To be repentant is to to just call out to God, God, be merciful to me. I have nothing else. Only your mercy. We see it illustrated over in uh, the book of Acts as well. And just a couple of these. I don't want to get lost in this, but Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost, of course. Amazing miracle. Tongue speaking there at Pentecost. Gathers a rather large crowd. Never one to miss the opportunity. Peter stands up to preach, doesn't he? He preaches a a very powerful and confrontive sermon to the very people who just a couple of months before, a month and a half before, had called for the death of Jesus, right? We have no king but Caesar. Away with him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. 
we're fully aligned with Rome. We have no king but Caesar. And Peter brings them under conviction through the Scriptures of the wickedness of their deed. And he brings them to a, a breaking point. Verse 36, kind of the conclusion here. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, it says. They were pierced to the heart and and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? We have killed our Messiah. And God has raised him from the dead. And judgment now is all that's left. Of course, Peter says, verse 38, right? Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That is, publicly identify yourself with the one who you just a short time ago wanted nothing to do with. Demonstrate your repentance, baptism. But you see this, they were pierced to the heart. The tax gatherer thumping his chest and and calling out to God. This is what it means to mourn over sin. Now, mourning begins with with a contemplation of our own personal sin, to be sure. But it does not end there. It does not end only with with a reflection upon our own personal sin. There is a corporate aspect of mourning as well for the follower of Jesus Christ, for the people of God. It's a corporate element. Psalm 119, verse 36, the psalmist writes, My eyes shed streams of water because, why? They do not keep your law. My, I, I weep over those who do not keep your law, who are among your people. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, The church there at Corinth has this this man who's involved in this incestuous relationship and and the church seems to be celebrating this expression of Christian freedom. Paul is outraged, horrified. He writes to them, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as, as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. What, are you crazy? Even the pagans don't do that. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. That's the same word, by the way. Same word as Matthew 5, 4. You have not mourned instead. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Corinthians You should be weeping over this. And yet you don't. Paul writes to them again in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21. He says, I'm afraid 
that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And the basic idea there is that you will still be in such open sin that I will be humiliated by having brought this church into existence. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Paul says, if I get there again, and it's still going on, I will mourn over you. Break my heart. You break my heart. My friends, sin is serious. It is very, very serious. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and in verse 2. He says it's better, this is colloquially speaking, this is my translation, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Because that is the end. Death is the end of everyone. And the wise take it to heart. Boy, does our culture need to hear that message, huh? It's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. How countercultural is that? Why? Because everyone is going to die. And when you go to a funeral and there's a body laying there, it, it somehow helps to focus one's attention. It brings a certain soberness, sobriety, to life. We go to a party, everybody's having fun, right? We're going to live forever. Solomon says, parties are okay. He's not prohibiting parties. He's just saying, don't forget to go to the funerals too. My kids were young. I would take them to funerals. Well, it's a good idea for them to see and understand. Sin is deadly serious. Deadly serious. We have a tendency to just pass it off, don't we? But it's deadly serious. And when you go and there's a body laying there, sin has produced this. Man was not made to die like this. This is a result of sin. We need to be regularly reminded of that. It's my job, among other things, is to help you get ready to die. It's to help you get ready to die. Because that's what's going to happen to you. I know you young people, you don't believe that. You're going to live forever. No, you're not. You're going to die. And you need to be ready. You need to be ready. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are repentant. For they shall be comforted. I told you last time, the word blessed, right? It means to be a recipient of divine favor. To be favored by God. To be approved of by God. 
It is a, a, a blessed thing. I thought about entitling the sermon, Happy Are the Sad. I thought that would be kind of a catchy title, wouldn't it? Happy Are the Sad. We are favored by God because we are repentant. And because we are repentant, we shall be comforted. Isn't that amazing? We shall be comforted. It doesn't end there. It just doesn't say blessed or happy or favored by God or those who are sorrowful, those who are repentant. It, it includes this amazing definition of a blessing on the backside, doesn't it? They'll be comforted. By the way, the way it's constructed just grammatically, we ought to note this. We'll probably note it every time, but I'll note it now. Blessed are those who mourn, and, and we could say, and only those who mourn. Grammatically, that's the way it's put together in the Greek. Blessed are those who mourn, and only those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Only the mourners shall be comforted. Only the repentant shall be comforted. There's exclusivity here. Now, the mention of comfort, what is that about? The mention of comfort should draw us back into the Old Testament because that's where the concept comes from. So go ahead. Let's, let's, let it point us back. Let it take us to Isaiah chapter 40. For they shall be comforted, Jesus promises. It takes us back to Isaiah 40 and the opening verses. Isaiah chapter 40 begins the second half of the book of Isaiah. This is the part of the book of Isaiah that has all those wonderful promises. This is the section of the book that speaks of deliverance. It talks of the suffering servant, right? There are dark days for Israel. She as a nation is going to be swept away. In chapter 39, there's a prophecy given by Isaiah to Hezekiah, right? After Hezekiah is recovered from his illness, he brings in the Babylonian envoys and he kind of shows them off, shows off his stuff. Isaiah says to him, Hezekiah, who are these guys and what were they doing? He said, oh, they're from Babylon and I was showing them all the cool stuff I've got. And he says, you idiot, you fool, you arrogant man. It's going to be all stripped away. They're going to be back, Isaiah, not just to look, but to touch. Verse 8, chapter 39, then Hezekiah says to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and truth in my days. That's amazing, by the way. It's okay, I guess I'll be gone before it happens. But notice how chapter 40 opens. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. By the way, where have we heard those words, huh? A voice calling in the wilderness? Make ready the way of the Lord? Hmm. That's right, John the Baptist. Comfort, oh, comfort my people. Comfort them. It is the Messiah who brings comfort to the nation. It is He alone who can bring comfort. In fact, turn to the back of the book, Isaiah chapter 61 Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. Messiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Messiah is the one who brings comfort to the nation. It is He who will overturn their captivity. It is He who will deliver them from from their sin, right? Between chapter 40 and chapter 61 appears that amazing chapter 50, 50, 53. Let's try it again. 50. Yeah, there we go. Right? Because Messiah himself will take their iniquity upon him and act as their substitute. Israel knew these promises. They were looking for this. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. Remember when the child is brought into the temple, there's that old man, Simeon. Remember, it says he's in the temple and he's looking for the consolation of Israel, it says. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. By the way, that's the same word, comfort. He is looking for the comfort of Israel. He's looking for Messiah to come and, and to fulfill these amazing promises. Blessed are the repentant, for they shall be comforted. Messiah will bring them comfort. Now, in what sense does this beatitude apply to you and I today as Christians? And there is a historic context, to be sure. When Jesus originally spoke this, there's there's no cross in sight, as it were. He is still offering the kingdom to the nation. We're on the other side of the cross. We're not the nation of Israel. So, so what do we do with this? How do, we, how do we derive comfort? I mean, the answer, of course, is that uh, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, right, God sent forth His Son into the world to His people 
who rejected him. And he was slain for them. According to the power of God, because it was impossible for death to hold Jesus, he was raised from the dead, breaking the back of both sin and death. He has conquered these things. He has made eternal life, the life of God, available to all who will come to him by faith. It's an amazing truth, isn't it? By simple faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you may have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's tremendous comfort. It's interesting to me that at the Last Supper... Jesus tells his disciples, right? He's alone with them in the upper room. He tells them he's going away. He's speaking of his crucifixion, his his resurrection, then his ascension back to the right hand of the Father. He tells them he's going away. But he says to them, don't be troubled, don't be agitated, because I have asked God the Father on your behalf to send you another comforter. Another comforter. And he will be with you forever. John 14. I'll send another comforter. This comforter is the Holy Spirit of God, isn't it? He sends forth the Holy Spirit. And and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us is to regenerate us, to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel, to produce saving faith in us, to serve as our assurance that God will ultimately and fully complete that which he has begun in us when Messiah returns and establishes his kingdom. There's real comfort. There is comfort now and in the future for you and I if we have embraced Christ by faith. Mourn over our sin, yes. Be repentant. But recognize that Christ has dealt with sin, that we have been freed from its guilt. And that someday... We will be entirely delivered from its presence when Messiah returns. My friends, that's comforting, isn't it? That's comforting. Blessed are those who are repentant, for they shall be comforted both in this life and the life to come. Now we need to evaluate. It's our next word. We need to evaluate. I'm evaluating the clock and I'm thinking what I'm going to slice. <laughs> we need to evaluate. The obvious place to begin the evaluation is to, is to examine our own heart and, and, to, and to look and see whether we really truly have embraced Christ and Christ alone as our Savior. It begins there. Are we trusting in Christ? Have we repented of our sin? And are we trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation? It begins with that evaluation. If we haven't, we're not a disciple. But if we have, I trust that the great majority of you here have. It doesn't end there. It continues. That's an interesting thing. 
Blessed are those who mourn. It's a, it's a present active participle. Who cares? It's an ongoing activity. That's why we care. That's why we care. Okay. We don't care except for what it means. We could translate this. Blessed are the mourning ones. For they shall be comforted. It is not a one-time event of repentance. It is a life of repentance. A disciple of Jesus Christ, let me make it as clear as I can. A disciple of Jesus Christ lives a life of repentance. It begins with repentance. It continues and carries forward with repentance. Why? Well, because sin carries forward, doesn't it? Because sin carries forward. Each new sin, each new transgression whether it be an act of, of overt commission or whether it be an omission, meaning something we've overlooked that we should have done. When we become aware of it, it should bring a sense of grief to our hearts. It should grieve us. Our conscience should convict us of sin. So the question what is your attitude towards sin? What is your attitude towards sin? Do you make light of it? Do you make light of it? Do you trifle with it? As a brother of mine is fond of saying. Well, how do, how do I make light of sin? Well, let me suggest to you a few ideas. Here's one, laughing at it. By laughing at it. I'm a Christian. I don't tell dirty jokes, right? But when they're told, I laugh. Or the innuendos, right? I don't do it, but I sure enjoy it. There's another way, by being intrigued by it. There's a practical test. When you're standing in the line in the grocery store, where do you look? Boy, is that a problem. Don't you think? Used to be you could like turn and look the other way, but they surround you now. By the way, I just want to say this. If we're in the grocery store and you're in line ahead of me or behind me or beside me and I don't say anything to you, it's not because I'm rude. It's because I don't see you. And the reason I don't see you frequently is because I'm trying to find some place to look other than everywhere around me. But those headlines, they're, they kind of catch the eye and pull you in, don't it? Don't they? pictures. So if I'm looking at my shoe, then you'll know why. So if you want to catch my attention, you're just going to have to get down really low. (laughs) Or tap me on the shoulder. I'd rather talk to you than look at my shoe. So anyway, but we can be intrigued by it. That's the point. It It can become intriguing to us. We can find ourselves drawn into it. There's another way. We make light of sin, and that is by ignoring it. By ignoring it. What do I mean by that? I mean, we don't confess it. We sin, but but we don't confess. We just got to ignore it, you know. Let me just say this to you. If time makes sin go away, then there is no reason to send a Messiah. All God would have to do is wait a while. 
And yet, frequently, isn't that how we really treat sin? Let's just ignore it and it'll go away. Or we cover it up. It's another way. Sweep it under the rug. Hide it. Lastly, let's be entertained by it. Hmm? Let's be entertained by it. I'm not going to get on a movie rant. But wow. You know, we really can, can desensitize ourselves to sin. So we don't mourn it anymore. We don't really think it's that big a deal. And we're all susceptible to this. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 4. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Back to that thing again, huh? Just thinking about sober, serious things in life. We need to evaluate ourselves. Where are we in this whole process? Where do we stand? And third, we need to cultivate. We need to cultivate that which exists in principle, that which is true of us. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are repentant. That's the doorway through which we enter. It's the life we live. If that's not true of us, if we never entered the doorway, if it's not the life we're living, we're not his followers. But how do we cultivate more? How do we, how do we, how do we help the seed to grow strong? I think one of the best ways to do this is to tenderize the conscience. We need to tenderize the conscience. You know, when you buy a cheap cut of meat, right? You put it in a bag or a bowl or whatever, and you add in different things. And I think there's like five things you're supposed to add. I don't remember what they all are. Oil and salt and acid and whatever. No, I'm serious. You have to have something like fruit, like fruit juice, uh, citrus juice, whatever. You put all that in there and it marinades. That's where I'm going with this. It marinades the meat, right? And what does it do? It makes the cheap cut a little bit better. Softens it a little. So we need to tenderize our conscience. And the way we tenderize our conscience is to marinate in the gospel. We need to marinate in the gospel. How do we do it? Well, I have a whole bunch of verses and I had all great intentions. We're going to look them all up. No way. So I'm going to just feed it to you. It's on the screens. You copy them down. Check them on your own. They're all basically stuff you know. How do we marinate in the gospel? Well, it begins with God. So it begins with God's holiness. We begin by stewing on the holiness of God. There's a couple of verses for you there. Isaiah 6, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire, it says there. When's the last time you thought about God as a consuming fire? So God's holiness. God's holiness. Then we, these are the ingredients. So, you know, like mix up a meat marinade. These are the ingredients. So it's God's holiness, and then it's our need. Our need in light of His holiness. Holiness. Romans 3 and verse 10, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. 
God is, is holy and transcendent and, and frightening. We are wicked and sinful, deserving of death. God hasn't left us there because God has given a gift. God has given a gift. Leviticus 17.11, you probably haven't thought about that one in relation to the gospel, but you can check it out on your own time. What it basically says is that you need to have death to satisfy sin. That's to be a, that's to be a substitute who has to die. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, right? Somebody might perhaps die for a good man. But while we were yet sinners, fill it in. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. That's God's gift to us. Our response to that gift, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. A response to this amazing gift and offer of God is is to respond in faith and a changed life. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, right? Shall we continue in, in sin that grace might abound, Paul says? May it never be. May it never be. You know, I love the the writing of uh, Stuart Townend. It's a more contemporary hymn writer. This is a line out of one of his hymns, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. We, we sing it here all the time, right? It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We took communion together. It is my sin that causes him to hang upon that cross, right? It is his body and blood given for me. Tenderizes my conscience to think about such things. Then finally, there is God's promise to us as we who mourn. This one I'll turn you to. Go ahead over to Revelation chapter 21. This is really cool. Where the Bible ends here. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. We mourn now, someday, when Messiah returns and and establishes his kingdom. The morning will pass away. How do we respond to such amazing truth? Revelation 22, verse 20. John says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. 
Marinate in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Recognize who God is and who you are. Recognize the the impossible gulf that exists between you and Him. And recognize how He condescended to send His own Son to bridge that gap that you might have life everlasting. Mourn today. And someday He will wipe away every tear. May God bless you, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we can't fathom the extent of that gift because we can't fathom either your holiness or our depravity. We only get a glimpse of each. And yet, Lord, what we can see, what has been revealed to us through your word, is more than enough to occupy us for eternity. May you enable us to be a people who mourn over sin. A people who feel deeply our shortcomings and transgressions against your holy character. A people who weep. And a people who have hope. Hope in Christ, that we do not weep like those without hope. That we firmly attach ourselves by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we revel in His gospel, that it is our source of hope and comfort. May we be a people who are about the Master's business until Christ returns to establish His great kingdom, that we would be found faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, it is so good to be back with you. God bless you. If there's been anything said this morning that has stirred your conscience and and you want to speak more of these things, I'll be down here afterwards. You come and let us talk. God bless you.